the crisis uh, is being handled. Poorly. It's a life. It's got a life. What? And we're putting out that life because that's a bad life that we're talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN, Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO, Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. In Keelanville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, and Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but he and Desi are taking a few days off for the July 4th holiday, so you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler. I host the Nicole Sandler Show. It's based at nicolesandler.com. Heard on the Progressive Voices Network and stations like these around the world, too, I suppose. And always available as a podcast from nicolesandler.com. And happy to be here. There's, um, as usual, just so much going on. Uh, we can barely scratch the surface in an hour. So we'll do our best to bring you a little bit of everything. Coming up today, our interview is with Congressman Eric Swalwell of California's 15th district, I believe. He's got a brand new book out called Endgame, Inside the Impeachment of Donald J. Trump. And what else do you want to talk about over the 4th of July than the impeachment of Donald Trump? <laughs> Uh, but we've got news and um, a few other tidbits to share with you. But I like to start my show each day with something funny because over the course of the hour, things get so serious. So today I thought I would share with you one of the funnies <laughs> that I found for my program this week. And well, this one is courtesy of a, a website called The Recount. I don't know a whole lot about them. It's at therecount.com. And just know whoever edited this together edited the video. <laughs> so I will post a link to it from bradblog.com where today's show is posted so you can watch it because this took a lot of patience on somebody's part. But basically, these are the words that we would like to hear from Donald Trump because he owes America an apology. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm announcing I'm sorry for the way I handled the whole coronavirus pandemic right now. I'm doing a very, very terrible job. Thousands of people are dying and dying. 
violently dying. It's kind of my fault. Can you believe the fake news is still showing my briefings in these briefings? Well, I think I've been incredibly racist toward the Asian Americans. We have to protect our Asian Americans. For me, I suggested medical treatments like hydroxychloroquine and a disinfectant, even though I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. Please listen to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks. Again, I'm not a doctor. I have blamed a lot of people. And I'm not just blaming President Obama. I blame the governors, the World Health Organization in China for my big failure. That was a tremendous failure with regard to the virus. I can say very honestly, I'm just a third-rate president. I am, I will tell you, a tremendous danger to our country. But don't worry about it. In a few months, you can vote. One day, my president will go away. You know it. You know it is going away. I said this virus will go away fast, and it hasn't. So uh, please thank our healthcare workers, and remember this: ultraviolet or just very powerful light is not <laughs> a cure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, that deserves a round of applause. TheRecount.com. Again, I will post the video at Bradblog.com along with uh, today's show. So I guess with that, we should get to the news. The news is not quite so funny. The United States confirmed over 55,000 new coronavirus cases on Thursday, hitting another single day record. More than 10,000 of those cases were in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis is in denial and is reluctant to take any definitive measures. In Texas, though, Governor Greg Abbott, who just a few weeks ago prohibited mayors throughout the state from making mandatory mask orders, has changed course, now issuing a statewide order requiring people in counties with more than 20 diagnosed cases to wear face coverings inside businesses or other buildings open to the public or in outdoor public space where social distancing is impossible. COVID cases are now on the rise in 40 states. Many of them have now rolled back reopening plans. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, who issued a statewide mask order last week, vetoed a bill calling for letting gyms and amusement parks reopen. Well, Donald Trump begins his three-day Independence Day weekend at Mount Rushmore, where 7,500 people are expected to attend a fireworks display on Friday night. Republican Governor Kristi Noem, a Trump ally, said masks will be optional and social distancing won't be required at the event. That prompted objections from local officials, including the Republican mayor of nearby Rapid City. Leaders of several Native American tribes in the region also warned the event could result in a coronavirus spike among their members. You think? Harold Frazier, chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, said the president is putting our tribal members at risk to stage a photo op at one of our most sacred sites. Authorities are watching trends around Tulsa, Oklahoma, following Trump's rally there last week. And there are some troubling signs. For instance, former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain is in the hospital. Kane learned Monday that he had tested positive for COVID-19 and was admitted on Wednesday. Yes, he attended Trump's June 20th rally in Tulsa. Now, the Trump campaign announced hours before the event that six staff members on the advance team had tested positive for the coronavirus. And after the rally, two members of the Secret Service who attended also tested positive. 
Kane said in a video on his website that he had worn a mask at the event when in groups of people, but he posted photos on social media showing him without a mask, surrounded by a lot of other unmasked people. The Supreme Court on Thursday agreed to hear the Trump administration's appeal of a lower court ruling that said Congress should have access to secret grand jury materials from then-Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. So, the Supreme Court will take up the case in its next term that starts in October, which means that Democrats won't get to see the secret grand jury testimony before the November presidential election. An appeals court previously sided with Democrats and said that lawmakers should be given access to the materials because Mueller's probe stopped short of coming to a conclusion about whether the president tried to obstruct justice. The DOJ says the House hasn't indicated that it, quote, urgently needs these materials for any ongoing impeachment investigation. Maybe it's time to start a new one. As for the remaining eight Supreme Court decisions still to be announced, the court said they would begin releasing the next batch Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Well, you know the old adage, money talks? Well, as monuments to Confederate traitors continue to fall and the outrage over such tributes are being reconsidered, new pressure from investors has prompted FedEx to ask the Washington NFL franchise, still inexplicably known as the Redskins, to change its name. FedEx paid $205 million for the naming rights to Washington Stadium in 1999, so the team plays on FedEx Field. Adweek reported Wednesday that a group of 87 investment firms had written three letters to Nike, FedEx, and PepsiCo, asking the companies to sever their business ties with the Washington team unless they dropped the current moniker. By the way, Frederick Smith is the founder of FedEx and the company's CEO, and he's also a member of the team's ownership group. Yes, money talks. And finally, the FBI on Thursday arrested Ghislaine Maxwell, longtime confidant of sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, on allegations that she helped her then-boyfriend recruit underage girls who were subjected to sexual abuse. Ha, ah, it's about time. Hopefully just some justice can be served. All right, quick time out and back on the other side with Congressman Eric Swalwell, who's got a new book out called Endgame. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. All the California... Cats. 
I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Let's head out to California. Eric Swalwell is a congressman from California. We've gotten to know him from his numerous appearances on television and um, his wonderful questioning during the impeachment inquiry. And now he's got a new book out. It's called Endgame. Congressman Swalwell, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you so much, Nicole, for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the book just was released. You're in very crowded company, but uh, good company. Nicole, you're right. It's right around the time that uh, John Bolton's The Room Where It Happened uh, book comes out. (laughs) But I was actually in the room where it happened, Uh, in the room where holding the president accountable was on the House of Representatives side, where we heard from courageous witnesses like Marie Ivanovich and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Fiona Hill. And it's really a testament to their courage. It's a condemnation of the cowardice I saw from too many Republicans and also a call to action that uh, we now have to impeach and remove the president at the ballot box because that's the only remedy for uh, frankly, this this national nightmare that we've been living for the last four years. Well, we absolutely do. And and I was one of the people who was um, not really happy that you were not chosen to be one of the impeachment managers, because frankly, during the inquiry, you did a really great job of questioning. I was I was very impressed. I thought you were a shoe in. Were you surprised? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you threw your hat in the ring if if that's how it worked. I wanted to. Yeah. And I talked about that in the book. Um, you know, I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to, frankly, do whatever I could to help uh, the team. And one of the, the parts that you know, the public probably didn't see was just you know, the solidarity and the unity uh, among the teams, uh, both the Intelligence Committee and Judiciary Committee. And, and Val Demings and I were the two that were uh, on both. And you really bond when you're uh, going through something uh, like this. But, you know, as, as disappointed as I was uh, when it was announced, I realized it wasn't about me. This was right. about the president of the United States needing to be removed. It was a decision for the Speaker uh, of the House to make and and she alone. And the team that she sent over there was phenomenal. And they did the best job they could. Uh, And frankly, only one Republican, uh, Mitt Romney, had the courage to follow the evidence and, and not put their own careers above our national security. Now, were you surprised about that? Did you expect anything different? Or did you think that any Republicans would come around and do the right thing? No, I I believe the case that we put forward should have moved them to do that. But we also were holding out hope that, you know, perhaps uh, some of the witnesses who were reluctant to come forward when we put our case on, maybe once it made it to the Senate, uh, would come forward. People like John Bolton or Mick Mulvaney. uh, And they didn't. It was because the Senate essentially gave them an alibi by never uh, subpoenaing them. And so, no, I'm not surprised. And, you know, in the book, uh, Nicole, I laid out that uh, you know, I had a lot of friends uh, when I first went to Congress uh, in 2012 on the Republican side, and I saw this transition from being able to work with them, uh, you know, not necessarily on every issue. But once Donald Trump came into power, uh, first phase was denial. They, they were in denial about the fact that he actually won. They would privately express concern about his embracing of Russia But they would also express fear that if he tweets at them, as one of them said, he wins. And then in 2018, once we won the House and and beat 41 of them uh, to flip the House, you saw that they were in full on enabling mode. And and that's what we saw. They were they took out the shovels. They helped them bury the evidence uh, as much as they could. And that's why I'm convinced that we need a reckoning now uh, in November. Otherwise, 
uh, it's going to get worse. Without a doubt. Now, uh, Congressman Swalwell, you mentioned, of course, John Bolton again. And the fact that he didn't testify, I mean, there, there are, I'm out here screaming. I understand. I want to read the book. The, the revelations we've seen so far are, are stunning, you know, ex- kind of what I thought we'd see. But I'm not, I don't want to put any money in his pocket. This is a man who didn't stand up as an American citizen and do the right thing. He saw all this stuff and was in the room when it was happening and decided, well, I'm going to hold off until I can collect a paycheck from a book instead of testifying before Congress when he was asked to do so during the inquiry. And then again, during the impeachment trial, um, it, 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 why do we have no recourse when it comes to having a, a public servant testify before Congress? Because the president uh, and his team have defied uh, the congressional subpoena power. And they, they think that if they don't show up, they don't have to answer for what they've done. And so we're now going through the courts to see if Congress does indeed have a subpoena power. That's why uh, this tax returns case is so important. And we expect a Supreme Court decision on that uh, as early uh, as Monday. But yeah. going back to John Bolton, remember, we subpoenaed him in the House and then he said, I'll see you in court. And, and we felt the urgency to act that we weren't going to wait months on end uh, to see him in court while the president was trying to rig an upcoming election. And then when it went to the Senate uh, and he said, I have information, well, Chairman Schiff asked him to at least submit an affidavit and he wouldn't do that. So now, you know, him showing up with this book and these disturbing revelations, it's like a firefighter showing up with his fire truck and his fire hose but the building is now in rubble and ashes. It's yeah, like, great. Uh, right. Where were you when we really uh, needed you? Exactly. But no, nothing is surprising as far as what he's alleged. No, it no, fits no. the pattern of a president who would welcome interference, put his yep. own interests above the country's. And again, I, I think it just has to move people now to the ballot box. Now, would you consider subpoenaing him now, even though it's, I mean, what's the point? Uh, this We need to now just get him out of office. But is that something maybe down the road that you would consider doing? Because, look, even if we do hopefully get get Donald Trump out of the White House, I, I, we need to hold him accountable for the, what he's inflicted on this nation for the last four years and beyond. Yeah, we can't take the ankle monitor off this president uh, mm. until January twenty. Uh, 2021. So I, I, I do believe we have to you know, vigorously use our oversight power. And I know Chairman Schiff is considering all of the options uh, available to us to make sure that we do that, including uh, whether or not we would subpoena John Bolton. But I, I w- I'll leave that to the chairman. I think he's very wisely and effectively uh, led us uh, you know, for these past uh, two years. Right. So Congressman Eric Swalwell is with us. I got what well, you have two Twitter accounts. You have you pr- Eric yes. Swalwell and Rep Swalwell. Um, I know you follow me at Eric Swalwell. What, it was it one so that you could do your personal business on one and do the business of Congress on the other. You no, know, we have we're under really strict rules um, in, in the House. So anything that we do for official business uh, with taxpayer uh, dollars to communicate constituent resources or what we're doing in the house that has to be under at rep Swalwell. And then at Eric Swalwell is uh, a personal uh, mm-hmm. account. So uh, it, it just, it reflects, you know, understandably the rules that make sure that taxpayer dollars aren't abused. Well, thank you for that because there's such a blurring of those lines, especially with this administration. I mean, Trump goes on these trip, like for instance, the thing in Tulsa, 
It is a campaign rally, and yet he uses official resources, and I believe pays a lot of ta- uses taxpayer dollars to do these things. Um, I, I realize that trying to perform oversight on a president such as this has got to be really difficult. With Trump, it's like they throw all this against the wall and see what sticks, and there's no way, even with a dedicated, diligent press and Congress trying to perform oversight that you can confront each one of these things that he throws against the wall. It's so much on any given day. There's multiple things trying to cover it all and stay on top of what he's done is exhausting. And and for you guys, there's no way you can deal with all of it. So how do you pick and choose what you try to call him out on? Or, Or is it is how frustrating is all this? That's a great question, because he does not believe in or follow the rule of law. They, as I said, they defy subpoenas. And in, in the book, I, I laid out that during the Russia investigation, for example, uh, that started when the Republicans were in the majority in the House, uh, we would bring in Obama administration officials, former officials, and every single one of them honored their subpoena, did not put any qualifications or limitations on their testimony. And then when the Trump witnesses would come in, whether it was Jared Kushner, Hope Hicks, Don Jr., mm-hmm. they would refuse to testify anytime we got close you know, to what the president was doing with Russia. They would, they would just say, I refuse to answer. I refuse right. to answer. The number of times I heard that uh, during their interview. So they believe they're above the law. And the only way to you know, really enforce these subpoenas is, is to win in the courts uh, and, and if we're not going to win in the courts, we need to win, certainly need to win at the ballot box and then have uh, in 2021, you know, a reshaping of the courts that congre- that believes congressional subpoenas matter, that believes in the independent prosecutions uh, from the Department of Justice, because this president has just taken a wrecking ball. Uh, to so many of the institutions that we've always counted on. Right. You know, the the hypocrisy is not surprising at this point. We come to expect it from the Republicans. But the fact that they're now throwing out subpoenas to investigate, as Donald Trump calls it, the oranges of the Russia investigation is astounding. So they're okay with those subpoenas. You just can't subpoena anyone if they're a Republican. The same way Donald Trump says um, criticism of... Anybody is fine as long as they're not Republicans. If you criticize a Republican, according to Trump, you're you're a traitor and you're guilty of treason. I mean, I get that he's uneducated and 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 doesn't understand how government works. But you've been this is your fourth term in Congress, right? You're and so. Obviously, you were there under Obama, which at least at least was a functional administration. How how much of a difference is there between the way the Obama administration operated and the way the Trump administration does things for you as a member of Congress? You know, I remember uh, during I believe it was 2017, uh, there was a hurricane that had just before Maria, I I believe it was Irma, uh, it had wiped out. Saint Martin, Saint Martin, yes, uh, which is a, a split between the Netherlands and the French, and there were about ten thousand uh, U.S. Uh, citizens vacationing there. And I was working, you know, with the State Department at that time to try and, uh, you know, figure out how we could get U.S. citizens out of there, uh, off the island, because there was no power and, and it was really starting to get chaotic. And I realized early, early on, just administratively, 
that no one could sign off on any of the efforts that were being the, were being channeled through me of people who were offering private planes to go in there and, and pick up as many U.S. citizens as possible, trying to come up with options to, you know, marshal resources to get citizens off the island. And anytime we would start to make progress, I was told, well, the person, we have to run this even farther up the chain because we only have acting assistant secretaries or deputy secretaries. And that was intentional. It wasn't that the Senate hadn't moved to confirm the president has a Republican majority in the Senate. It's just that he doesn't believe in government. So take it, put aside the corruption and, as you said, being uneducated, unethical. He just doesn't believe in government helping people. And so he hasn't filled the positions that can help people in a time of crisis, like uh, during those hurricanes, as we're seeing right now during the pandemic, where they shelved the uh, pandemic playbook. And so he, he just doesn't believe uh, in government. And we're all paying the price uh, because of it. And, and that's not what we saw with the Obama administration. Right. Um, yeah. As much as, look, I disagreed with Obama on a lot of what he did. Um, I, I'm, I'm further to the left. I wanted to see a more progressive uh, administration. And, and uh, frankly, what he ran on, and that's not what we got. But, oh, my goodness, just knowing how they functioned as an operational government and seeing what we're dealing with now is just incredible and, to me. And I have and, an example, another example for you, Nicole. Uh, during those Russia uh, interviews, that the Republicans led, and sorry, I'm running a it's okay. I'd, start up preschool here. You can it's hear awesome. A That's wonderful. I'm always, and, uh, I'm all for kids and dogs making noise in the background. That's fine. Oh, so, hey, sweetie. Oh, she's this adorable. Is cricket. Uh, cricket? Oh, she's cricket. cute. Yep. Hi, Cricket. Thank you. <laughs> so it was interesting. There was not, the scheduling of witnesses was not always purposeful or intentional. It was really just around availability of witnesses. So one day you would have someone like, Susan Rice uh, or other senior officials testifying before the committee, and they were professional, knowledgeable, dignified. And then the next day you would have Roger Stone and you would have, you know, just all these different clowns and characters that were on the Trump team. And it was for me the best contrast of, you know, where we were, people who, again, cared about government, cared about helping people, again, put the politics aside they've just had experience and knowledge and ethics. And then you had this, you know, freakish clown show that had come into Washington on the Trump train. Mm -hmm. And it just, that was very, you know, jarring uh, right. to, to see that. Now, uh, just the, the whole thing. Now, you know, you, you're also a lawyer, and that was very apparent during your questioning. And you sit on the both the Intelligence and the Judiciary Committees, two really plum assignments. And, and I'm glad you're there because you're very effective in there. But as an attorney, seeing what Bill Barr is doing to the Justice Department doesn't make you ha your head explode? I, 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 I mean, me as just a, a, you're a layman, a civilian, I, I, I couldn't deal with the, the just, I, I call it opposite world where nothing makes sense. In is out, up is down, left is, well, not right, but you, you know what I'm saying? It just, and he is just undermining the rule of law on every front. Um, how do you deal with something like that, especially as an attorney and a member of Congress? I come from an office uh, in Oakland, California. It's the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And Kamala Harris was a, a prosecutor in that uh -huh. office. Uh, but most notably, uh, Earl Warren oh, wow. uh, was a prosecutor uh, in that office. And he, he came in and cleaned up a, a corrupt system 
that during Prohibition, you know, was enabling kind of the uh, underworld of crime in Oakland, and, and he cleaned it up, and, and that was reflected in the Miranda decision and some of the other decisions uh, that he ruled on to make sure defendants had more rights. And so the mantra in our office, and I, I talk about this in the book, is we do justice. And so I'm, I'm pretty, I would say, old school when it comes to the mixture of politics and prosecutions. I really think prosecutors have to be independent of politics. And I, I cringe when either a Republican or a Democrat tries to weigh in and, and tell prosecutors, you know, what they should do with the case. I think it's okay to say something's right or wrong, but to try and use political influence to tell a, you know, whether it's the attorney general or anyone else, what type of charges they should bring. I, again, I, I think we have to let the evidence guide what we do and nothing else. And with Bill Barr, it's just enabling Donald Trump's, you know, political uh, preferences. Yeah. And I hope the next person who leads that office uh, is a a true prosecutor that you know thinks about uh, equal justice under law with with little regard at all. Uh, I I hope so because uh, Eric Swalwell is our guest. I'm reading your book and game. I, I'm I apologize. I'm not fa- as far enough along in it as That's I okay. hoped. But I I just Thank you for got it. oh sure, and it's fascinating, and especially since we lived through this. You really are you, the book. It goes through what we lived through last year with the uh, from the impeachment inquiry through the impeachment through the Mueller report. And and I just uh, earlier today read the, the section on uh, the day of Mueller's testimony and how, you know, the media um, went with, well, it, it wasn't the bombshell we were hoping for. So, you know, impeachment's over. And um, you lived through, I mean, we put so much hope into Mueller finally just exposing this administration for what they are. And then Bill Barr, so it, it's released, and Bill Barr puts out this four-page uh alternate universe uh, explanation of what's in it that had no bearing on reality. Um, Again, I could sense your frustration because all the work you guys did all that whole time leading up to the report and and then they lie about everything. They lie with such impunity. You don't expect that from the attorney general, even if he is Donald Trump's attorney general. And and Nicole, it felt like, again, we, we had both hands behind our back because we were, all we were saying was let Mueller do his job. Right. You know, we, again, we were not, you know, trying to influence where the prosecution went. We were just saying, let it follow the evidence. And then, as you pointed out, Bill Barr immediately uh, comes out and, and, char- and mischaracterizes what Mueller had said to the point where Mueller had to send a letter, if you remember, mm-hmm. calling out Barr uh, for yeah. mischaracterizing uh, what he had found. And then, yeah, the media, I think, did want a Broadway show. And I talk about an exchange I have with a pretty well-known television anchor. Uh, who texted me during the hearing and said, I, I think I think you guys are losing if you're hoping Mueller's going to save you. And I, I wrote back to this individual and I said, well, he's not trying to win money. He's right. trying to lay out evidence of one of the most complex criminal cases ever investigated uh, in our country. And so if you listen to what he said or if you read the report, it's clear the president welcomed what Russia was doing. No prior Congress had ever envisioned writing a law to say you couldn't do what he did, we certainly have now. But he also committed 10 different crimes of obstruction of justice that by his own Department of Justice's standards, he can't be prosecuted for. So what what I point out in the book, Nicole, is that after the Mueller report, although the press panned it, 
there was a cascading of members who a cascade of members who got on board with impeachment because they were so concerned uh, about what they had heard and read. Right. Right. Uh, well, Democrats, of course. And and they should have been and because and Democrats are the only ones who read the report. Republicans didn't. It, it, it's such partisanship when it comes to oversight and it shouldn't be there. But, I, you know, I, I hate to keep bringing up John Bolton, but and I don't agree with anything he says, except one thing that I heard that he says in his book that I do agree with. And I did when it started when when Nancy Pelosi introduced the articles of impeachment and there were only those four. Um, and when when again, there was so much thrown against the wall that there were hundreds of things you could have chosen from. My thought was give them a lot so that some Republicans can actually say, okay, well, I'm not going to go along with these, but this one, you know, give them a way to say no to it. But so do you think that was a mistake to only introduce those four articles of impeachment and not throw the book at him and really take him to task for everything he's done? And I talk a lot about that in the book. So I, I don't think it was a mistake. It was de- it was intensely debated hmm. uh, because there there was a camp of, yeah, you know, ring him up for everything he's on the hook for. And the other the other camp. And, and I think this is where I, I I I agreed with the speaker in the sense that we had to cut through to the American people and keep it as simple as possible. And so the, the team of uh, Lawrence tribe hmm. uh, and. You know, some of the outside folks, you know, who were advising us on this, they really believe that when you look at the founders intent and the Federalist Papers, abuse of power is the greatest crime a public official could commit, not just in the United States, but going. They went farther back to uh, in the British uh, system when we were colony. And so the, the concept of a person using their office, you know, to essentially commit uh, bribery. Uh, that is the highest crime and misdemeanor that you could commit because it's a crime against the Constitution. And so right. we wanted to keep that, you know, very you know, clear and, and to the point. And then the second article, of course, was obstruction of Congress for the just uh, blanket refusal to cooperate with uh, any of our investigations. But it, exactly. was, it was, Nicole, intensely debated. Uh, and I, I think just recognizing the urgency to act and the need to make sure the public understood what we were doing. Uh, we landed on two uh, articles. So, okay. He's so good for probably a hundred, right? right? He's, okay. He's, there's no disputing that. Uh, I gotcha. And, and he is, and, and he should be brought up on charges. Do you believe that if Donald, uh, this is a two part question. If he loses, which he should, that he will leave voluntarily and once we get him out of office, do you believe that he will be brought up on charges and held accountable for everything he's done? I think he faces criminal exposure. Uh, yes, uh, I, I believe uh, you have the obstruction of justice uh, issue. Uh, I mean, God knows how prosecutors are going to view uh, the, what he did with President Zelensky in Ukraine. I remember mm-hmm. Bill Barr, uh, they said in like a couple of days, they looked at that and then said that there's no crime there. That doesn't mean future uh, prosecutors cannot look at, you know, welcoming uh, foreign interference or a contribution from a foreign government. There's this new allegation from John Bolton, which will have to be uh, investigated with China, uh, not only the Chinese, but also uh, Turkey. Right. Uh, you know, what the, the favors he was uh, asking, uh, the favors that Erdogan was asking of and what he was doing. And then, of course, uh, he is still individual 
uh, one. So <laughs> I, I right. think he faces vast criminal exposure. But to the more immediate question, do I believe he will leave office? No. But one thing I know about Donald Trump is that he is a coward. And mm-hmm. this is what we saw with the impeachment investigation. Only once we launched it, did he back down? Uh, only once we launched a congressional investigation, did he back down and actually give Ukraine the money that had already been voted on that's and right. that he had signed into law. So I believe that's a call to action for us to overwhelm the ballot box, not even make it close so that it's easy if some young military officer or secret service agent gets the order that you have to go tell him you're no longer the resident of this house. You got to go. But if it's close, that's where you can envision him summoning these, you know, supporters of his who have stormed state capitals in Wisconsin and Kentucky Mm -hmm. and Michigan you know, in their camouflage and, and their guns. carrying their AR-15s. Yep. You can see him trying to play into that confusion. But if it's not even close and it's a blowout, I think that's where he just backs down. And Well, he's, he's got to. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit heartened by the recent um, members of the military former uh, members of the administration who have come out in recent days and said, you know what? This is wrong. He's a bad guy from Mattis to Kelly to, you know, that that makes me think, all right, the military is not going to protect this guy. They're going to do they're going to protect the country. And I have to hope that that's the case. And Nicole, when you saw him make that uh, walk from the Rose Garden to the church right outside Lafayette Square with his massive entourage, you just have to think that he believes those are the people the, the ones that used chemical weapons, you know, on peaceful protesters, the ones that cleared the way with him and walked as an entourage. He has to believe that those are the people that will protect him. And that's why it's all the more important that senior military officials, former officials speak up and, and signal to current military officials that we have a rule of law. Yes. We have a peaceful transition of power uh, and they may need to be called upon uh, because we don't know what this president is going to do. Without a doubt. Um, there, there's so many more questions I have for you, and we're getting close to the end of the hour. So let's uh, we'll do a little bit of the lightning round. What did you learn from your uh, run for president? It's very hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, you know, I, I would say I learned a lot about the country in the sense that people in South Carolina, in Iowa, and New Hampshire uh, take their role of vetting a president so seriously, oh, yeah. it's like a second job. Um, I, and, and that was really heartening to see. And it gave me a lot of respect for anyone who's ever run, and especially anyone who's won, uh, because of the vetting that you go through, the excruciating and uh, you know painstaking days. But I, I also learned it's a real test of, of confidence. And uh, you know I was ready for the long physical days and, and hours of the campaign trail. But I mean, every single day you wake up and it's a test of you know mental uh, confidence. And so when I think about, you know, Joe Biden, this he, I think this is his third or fourth time, yeah. you know, running. Like he's a he's a tested candidate and he's been a, yeah, a vice that's president. That's one way to look and, at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's he's carrying himself with the confidence that right. you need. And you need you need to have confidence on the trail. And I think that was something that uh, just being candid with you, that that was harder for me to, you know, get my sea, le- sea legs throughout uh, the race. Um, I loved it. I don't regret doing it. Okay. I would have regretted had I not run. And on the issue of gun violence, uh, I really believe, uh, you know, we elevated that issue and 
uh, on my first debate night, I was able to get a number of candidates to commit to assault weapons ban and buyback, which I think is the only way to get those weapons of war. That's awesome. And thank you. I, I live in Coral Springs, Florida. We're right next door to Parkland. So, we, you know, it, that's uh, look, we've all been touched by gun violence and it's criminal that uh, we still don't have an assault weapons ban. So thank you for that. Um, you think you'll run again? I don't think so. No? Um, again, I, I would have regretted had I not run. And the best advice I give to Nicole, to my interns who ask what, it, what should they do if they want to run for office? I, well, I think it's the best advice. The, the, the advice I give them is don't run for an office, run on issues. So mm-hmm. seek out the issues you care about in the community and you'll find the office. But if you just say, I want to be in this office, so I'm going to run for this and this and this and climb my way up. I think people will see through that. I also think it never plays out the way you expect. And you could also be demoralized by losing on one of those, you know, uh, steps that you don't serve at all. And so I'll continue to care about ending gun violence, uh, you know, climate, student loan debt. And I think I'll find the best way to serve. Um, And that's the advice I give my interns and it's the advice I follow myself. Gotcha. And one last question during the debates, you did make a point of uh, the generational aspect of it. And maybe it's time to bring in a, a, a new generation of leaders. Um, once we get past this election, is it time for ch- a change in leadership in both the House and the Senate? Well, thank God we have Speaker Pelosi there right now, right? And, right and I now. Think there is okay. an exception to every rule, uh, and she's the exception to every uh, rule. Um, so th- thank God she's there. But what I have played a part in, and I laid this out in the book, uh, is leading an effort called Future Forum. And in the last election, 29 uh, members in their 40s and under were elected. They're the most diverse uh, group of candidates uh, that ran uh, in every way. And, and my hope is that on the issues of student loan debt, climate and gun violence, that they will lead the way. And Vice President Biden called me when I dropped out, Nicole, and he told me, you mentioned passing the torch. And he said, I hear you. And if I'm elected president, I promise to enable the next generation. And awesome. I'll take him at his word. Congressman Eric Swalwell, the book is Endgame. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, pleasure to meet you. you. I hope we can do it again thank sometime. Thank you for all you're doing to be a voice of reason. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Some kind words from Congressman Eric Swalwell at the end there. In just a moment, a few closing words as we ponder the meaning of Independence Day. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's Nicole Sampler, back again, guest hosting the broadcast so Brad and Desi can enjoy a 4th of July holiday, long extended weekend. I live in Florida, so I don't go anywhere because we have had 10 thousand new cases or thereabouts every day for the last few days. This is one of the worst hotspots in the nation. 
So as a lung cancer survivor with uh, (laughs) operating on a lung and a quarter, I don't leave the house. And when I do, it's with a mask and gloves on. So uh, I think we're in this for the long haul. Anyway, I'm celebrating my 4th of July at home, watching Hamilton streaming on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, for seven bucks, we'll sign up for a month so we can watch Hamilton in the comfort of our own home. But I was thinking a lot about, you know, this 4th of July holiday. The president is making a mockery of everything by having another super spreader event. This one at Mount Rushmore. Really? Mount Rushmore? Let me share with you while we're on radio, so I can only give you the audio version. But the Lincoln Project has another ad. Well, they have an ad for every occasion. And this time, the ad is in honor of Mount Rushmore. And and what they did was they assembled a series of quotes from the four presidents who are chiseled into the mountain there. And then a message for the current president, who will never have a space among those on Mount Rushmore. Here's the Lincoln Project ad. The alternate domination of one faction over another is itself a frightful despotism. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. It is of little use for us to pay lip loyalty to the mighty men of the past, unless we sincerely endeavor to apply the problems of the present, precisely the qualities which in other crises enabled the men of that day to meet those crises. Four of America's greatest presidents are carved into the living rock of South Dakota's Black Hills. They are a memorial to those who served with honor, led with courage, and took this great nation into the future. Their words, deeds, and legacies will survive time immemorial. America's worst president will neither be remembered nor revered. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. And and the quote they showed next to Donald Trump's picture was, I take no responsibility. Boom. But you know, this year, Independence Day stands for the same thing, but I think many of us have a different part of American history on our minds. We are concerned about how a good portion of our population has been treated through the years. Some people are still struggling with the words Black Lives Matter. In fact, I was there a few years ago. If you go back through the archives of my show, you'll hear a spirited conversation. Not that I'm inv- not that I'm asking you to do it because it wasn't one of my proudest moments, but you can find a spirited conversation between me and and a, a black woman about the subject of white privilege. And I'll tell you, 5 6 years ago, I didn't get it. Because I was going through a rough time, still am, but I didn't, I wasn't hearing what she was saying. I've done a lot of soul searching since then, and I fully understand it now. And I want to share with you something that popped up on my Facebook feed a few days ago that I've shared, and it is one of the best explanations of what Black Lives Matter is all about, an explanation maybe for white people who still don't quite get it. So here, here's how this goes. And I wish I knew who wrote this so I could thank them because it's that good. Anyway, this anonymous person wrote, In the simplest terms, 400 years ago, white people brought black people over here and enslaved them and sold them and treated them as less than human. For 250 years, 
while white men built the country and created its laws and its systems of government. While 10, 15 generations of white families got to grow and flourish and make choices that could make their lives better. And then, 150 years ago, white people, quote, freed black people from slavery. But then, angry white people created laws that made it impossible for them to vote, or to own land, or to have the same rights as white people. And even erected monuments glorifying people who actively had fought to keep them enslaved. All while another five, ten generations of white families got to grow and accumulate wealth and gain land and get an education. And then, 60 years ago, we made it, quote, legal for black people to vote and to be, quote, free from discrimination. But angry white people still fought to keep schools segregated and closed off neighborhoods to white people only, and made it harder for black people to get bank loans or get quality education or health care or to gasp, marry a white person. All while another two to three generations of white families got to grow and pass their wealth down to their children and their children's children. And then we entered an age where we had the technology to make public the things that were already happening in private, the beatings, the stop and frisk laws, the unequal distribution of justice, the police brutality. Police began in America as slave patrols designed to catch runaway slaves. And only now, after 400 plus years and 20 plus generations of a white head start, Are we starting to truly have a dialogue about what it means to be black? White privilege doesn't mean you haven't suffered or fought or worked hard. It doesn't mean white people are responsible for the sins of our ancestors. It doesn't mean you can't be proud of who you are. But it does mean that we need to acknowledge that the system our ancestors created is built for white people. It does mean that we aren't disadvantaged because of the color of our skin, and it does mean that we owe it to our neighbors, of all colors, to acknowledge that and work to make our world more equitable. Black Lives Matter. Again, I don't know who wrote it, but those words ring so true. And if they help one person understand what this is about, another white person to understand what white privilege is about, then I hope you'll share it. The other night, I, I'm not a sports fan, but my husband um, is, is a big fan of a show on HBO called Real Sports with Brian Gumble. You remember Brian Gumble used to host the Today Show a lifetime ago. Well, he's, he's in his 70s now, still looks good. And he did a story in this last episode about a young man who was shot by police. It was in a a suburb of Houston, I believe. Uh, His father had been a pro baseball player, and they lived in this community called Bel Air in Texas for decades. Well, their son, who was, I think, 23 years old at the time, was out on his way, came home, drove into the driveway, followed by a police car. And to make a long story short, The cop thought he was a suspect who had stolen a car because he's black, you know, and shot him as his parents who had heard the commotion and came outside from the house. This was about two in the morning in their pajamas. And they were they were treated like criminals and manhandled and thrown in the back of the police cars while their son was lying on the driveway bleeding out. Well, thankfully, the son survived. 
but his life was changed. So Brian Gumbel told this story, just one of many young black men, unarmed young black men who were shot by police in a show of force, in a show of power. But then Brian Gumbel ended the show with a word to the camera, and it was about the black tax. And I want to share that with you right now. Finally tonight, as we close out this Real Sports edition devoted in great part to racial injustice, a few personal words seem fitting about what some friends and I often refer to as the black tax. It's not an IRS thing. It's the added burden that comes with being black in America, and it's routinely paid no matter how much education you have, how much money you make, or how much success you've earned. The black tax is about more than just the added stares, whispers, and suspicions when you're out and about. It's about the many instances of disrespect and incivility your color seems to engender, and being expected to somehow always restrain yourself lest you not be what white Americans are never asked to be, a credit to your race. It's about living a life that included your father having to leave home to earn his law degree even though he was an honor student and a decorated war veteran. It's about your son getting arrested for doing nothing more than walking while black. And it's about having to be more concerned than your white friends and associates for the safety of your grandkids. It's about the day in and day out fatigue of trying to explain the obvious to the clueless. It's about being asked to overlook blue failings and white failings so they can be conveniently viewed as black issues. It's about being asked by so many what they should do or say about race when the easy answer lies in the privacy of each person's heart. It's the black tax. It's paid daily by me and every person of color in this country, and frankly, it is exhausting. I've been paying the black tax in America for almost 72 years now, long enough that I shouldn't have to ask others to simply accept one very basic reality, that our black lives matter. Thank you for being with us. Stay safe. Good night. And there you have it, a Bryant Gumbel speaking words of truth, and words that people who look like me may not realize. So this year on the 4th of July, I think it's important for us to listen, to listen to those other voices in this country who may not look like us, but are still Americans as we are. And we need to come together, I really think, to save what's left of this nation. And hopefully we can start turning things around again come November and then again in January when we get the orange menace out of the Oval Office. We don't usually play music on, on the broadcast, but I'm going to leave you with a song today. With Broadway dark through at least the end of the year, I'm going to play for you a song that's from a Broadway show. Now, this show closed after a limited run on Broadway a couple of years ago, and it's Bruce Springsteen. And I bring it up today because I noticed something on Twitter a few hours ago, and it was somebody, some right-wing uh, pol- politician who I and, and it I can't even remember who it was, but one of them finally got the message of what the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen's "Born in the USA" is about. It is not, as Ronald Reagan tried to appropriate it back in 1984, uh, a song saying "Rah rah, my country is great." It's a song about what's wrong with this country. And the rendition that Bruce Springsteen performed on Broadway, I think, is more true to the message than the original version that was found in the album by the same name. So from Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, I will leave you with Born in the USA. 
and wish us all a very happy 4th of July, a happy Independence Day, along with my hopes and wishes for uh, a much more democratic America. And let's hope we can make it through, through November 3rd and beyond. first kick I took was when I hit the ground You end up like a dog that's been beat too much Till you spend half your life just covering I was born in the USA Born in the USA I got in a little hometown jam So they put a rifle in my hands Sent me off to a foreign land To go and kill the yellow man I was born in the USA Born in the USA Come back home with a refinery Iron man says, son, if it was up to me Went down to see my VA man He said, son Don't you understand, no I had a brother at Quezon Fighting off the Viet Cong They're still there He's all gone, gone He had a woman he loved in Saigon I got a picture of him in her arms in her arms Down the shadow of the penitentiary Out by the gas fires of the refineries 
I'm 40 years burning down the road, 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 the road. I've got nowhere to run. I've got nowhere to go. I'm a long gone daddy in the USA. I'm a cool, cool rockin' daddy in the USA. Thanks for listening. I'm your guest host, Nicole Sampler. Brad and Desi will be back next time for the broadcast. Happy 4th of July and good luck, world.